Welcome to episode 299 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was released on Wednesday, 1st of June, 2022. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Turn Bicycles. The good people at Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. In other words, they make the kind of bikes that they want to ride. Turn has e-bikes for every type of rider, whether you're commuting, taking your kids to school, or even carrying another adult. Visit www.turnbicycles.com, that's T-E-R-N, bicycles.com, to learn more. Thanks, David. I'm Carlton Reed, and welcome to The Spokesman. This episode is a conversation with FITS Professor Marco Di Rommelstut of the University of Amsterdam's Urban Cycling Institute. I started by asking Marco about an award given to the Dutch language version of the book. Yeah, that's that's one of the um, the things that makes me maybe makes me the most proud of the book. It's it's um, seen by many as a transportation book, but we've written it as a a general interest book, and it won a prize for best journalist book of the Netherlands uh, in 2021. So there was a great uh, sort of um, recognition that what we've written here is not only sort of a technical book about mobility, but actually uh, uh, touches upon important discussions that we want to have uh, in in the wider societal um, debate. Yes. Now, your, your co-author here is, and I'm, I'm hoping I'm getting pronunciation right here, is, is Talia? Talia Vicardi. Talia Vicardi. Thank you. Uh, 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 but she also, because she writes for the De Correspondent, I mean, what, what is she, uh, how well is she known in the Netherlands? Well, she's, she's known as a, as a good journalist. That's also how we crossed paths. So we've, we... Um, we met in uh, in a conversation that uh, she, she came as a journalist for the correspondent and she came to my my office at the time uh, uh, academic researcher on cycling uh, and i had very high hopes because i had already many uh, conversations with journalists about cycling but very often they didn't really take off beyond the point that uh, cycling is nice sustainable cheap or whatever and I was really hoping because she was working for the correspondent, which is in the Netherlands known as a platform for journalism beyond the the uh, beyond the daily fuss, journalism that really wants to go deeper. So I was really hoping that she would come by and we could finally have a conversation uh, that I would uh, find more important about what the street is, what mobility is for, and so on. So what's what's the book called in Dutch? Because in in English it's movement. What's it in Dutch? Yeah, in Dutch it's. Het recht van de snelste, uh, which would tra- translate directly as the right of the fastest, or mm. uh, the win- the winner takes all. Uh, um, who comes first? Uh, first, uh, first come first serve. Uh, but it's sort of a pun on uh, in Dutch. Uh, the the actual statement is het recht van de sterkste, the right of the strongest, or the the right of the fittest. Um, so um, it's a it's a pun that refers to the notion that in our uh, public space on our streets, uh, speed has become the dominant uh, indicator for designing the streets and for thinking about the streets. So we just take for granted that uh, the right of the fast um, 
uh, trumps all the all the all the other potential rights that we could also uh, use to think about the street. And as the book talks about it, it that that also involves cyclists going traveling too fast as well. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it is it's, it, in the sense. That, so it started that uh, Talia came to my office to talk about uh, how how cycling could solve all the uh, mobility issues that we are facing, and uh, a position we. We, we see a lot, of course, in uh, bicycle activism. And I started to ask her exactly those questions. So it's, uh, uh, because for me, it really depends on what type of cycling, what kind of cycling, uh, uh, what, what, what that cycling sh- uh, symbolizes. Uh, and I started asking her questions about if cycling would also represent the same notion of speed and going fast from A to B, but now no longer on four wheels and in a cocoon, but on a slightly different uh, version of that. Is that actually a better world or not? Are we then actually um, taking back the public spaces that our streets once were? Uh, or are we just uh, uh, replacing the you know, one of the problems with a, with a new one? So, so that brought us to that notion that it's not a question about bikes versus cars. It's actually a question about the fundamental, fundamental underlying notions such as speed. Is speed the dominating public space? If that is the case, uh, then uh, most other use uh, of that public space um, uh, can no longer longer happen, and that that, that uh, applies both on cars but also on yeah on bikes. Now, in in the bo- in the in the preamble uh, to the book, uh, Talia. Uh, describes but it mentions the fact that you're the cycling professor and and, and she said that was obviously a, something that she was very very interested in and 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 uh, amused by but then she says uh in describing your name and, and you can now actually pronounce your name on on, on tape here because she said it that cycling professor is a handy moniker for a man with a tricky surname so even even dutch people think your your surname is tricky yeah even i think it's tricky <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was the one. That was once the reason. So my name is uh, in Dutch Marco Te Brummelstroet, which is already a bit of a tongue breaker, um, and also has this this strange uh, uh, strange uh, letters in it that uh, so it's very confusing uh, for for people. So it was once the reason to call myself online on Twitter mm-hmm. uh, to use the handle Fitzprofessor because mm-hmm. indeed it's much uh, easier to use and to uh, to 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 remember. Uh, so that was also indeed the reason uh, for her to uh, to come by. So I, I'm, I'm glad it's not just me then. Okay. Um, let, let, before we get into the book, and 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 I've, I've read it, and it, it's fascinating as as as, as I, I'd expect, I guess. Um, uh, let's talk about you, because I've come across you, and and I've, I've certainly put uh, recordings on this this podcast of your summer school. Mm-hmm. in, in uh, the University of Amsterdam. So dis- describe your work, including, you know, how you've, you've exported yourself uh, through that summer school and getting international students coming to, to, to Amsterdam. Yeah, so it, it started out with uh, uh, being an academic. Uh, I was working on very abstract concepts of use of knowledge by planners, uh, I guess. And at, uh, at a certain point in my career, I really wanted to focus more on uh, on a topic that uh, that was less abstract and more uh, more more tangible to work on. 
And I came at that time, I came to the conclusion that in the Netherlands, uh, we have this uh, crazy phenomena the, known internationally, the, the cycling culture. But in ac academic circles, nobody uh, is uh, known, I would say. But at that time, I was, I was, uh, my position was that nobody's doing uh, academic research on that. And I found out quite quickly that that's not the case. But in the, uh, many people are doing research on cycling, but they don't, um, they don't make that an explicit point of their research. So there are many uh, transport economists, transport historians, Uh, for instance, that do research uh, that includes cycling, but they don't call themselves the cycling historian or whatever. Um, so at that point, I started to think uh, about what could be the role of somebody who would take that uh, symbolic notion of cycling uh, more central, uh, in this case, the cycling professor. Um, and one of the products that that immediately came out of that was this, the summer school, the notion that uh, uh, we could sort of put a ribbon around all this great and fascinating research that's going on in the Netherlands uh, for foreigners recognizable as something that is about the cycling culture that they want to understand, but for all the researchers themselves, not something they would uh, they put themselves on a podium uh, for. Mm. And so the summer school, how long has it been going for? Because I, I, I came to the first one, didn't I? Y yes. Yeah. So it's uh, we are now going to run the sixth installment. Wow. But there were two years, uh, COVID years, of, of course, in oh, between. Oh, yeah. uh, no traveling. So also no mm. summer schools. Because mm. the summer school, is, well, it's very international. The 30 students every year, a uh, waiting list of, uh, of about 60 Um, and we select based on uh, on diversity of uh, discipline, dis disciplinary background, but also geographical background. So it brings together uh, the world for three weeks uh, in in Amsterdam. And the whole notion, and that became central in the in the further work that I uh, started to do around cycling. The whole notion is to get uh, to get more confused on a higher level. So you come in expecting to to uh, or at least some students expect to. Uh, to learn uh, the tricks of how to get cycling exported to their own context. But on day one, we already start to question uh, why, they, why they should be interested in cycling. What questions can you ask uh, about cycling? Why is cycling so such a strong and relevant symbol? But also, uh, what kind of mistakes could you make in sort of... Uh, 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 Un uncritically uh, copying this notion uh, of how cycling was implemented in the Netherlands, because there you could you could also, if you take a more critical perspective, you could really question uh, if if you could start uh, all uh, new uh, by introducing a cycling culture. Is then the way that the Dutch did it is that really the best uh, possible example to do it? So it starts to question that. So in three weeks, the students get confused on a higher level. They go back to their own context, and that's also where we now see five, six years after the first cohorts, is that they uh, really become quite powerful um, advocates, but also uh, political uh, leaders and players that are asking those questions to actually uh, make better policies. Because the people who went to those first ones, you know, they, they were often doing master's degrees and PhDs and stuff. They've probably now finished those academic studies. They have moved into, into the world of, of, of power. I guess you could put exactly. it. Yeah, you are seeing the fruits of that. Then you're seeing that the first people who joined are now actually certainly starting to have their hands on the levers of power. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they, they of course, have developed that international network uh, that was really powerful, especially in the beginning, where they kept uh, looking for each other, um, kept asking each other's uh, uh, support uh, when they were doing things. Because the, the first thing that we noticed is that many of these uh, quite uh, activist uh, players, uh, researchers, uh, also sometimes already policymakers, they felt quite lonely in their own context, fighting for something, not being aware that there was sort of a bigger international network. Uh, and now suddenly knowing how big that network is gives them a lot of, uh, of, of power and leverage to, to go back. Uh, but also this, this, uh, the ability to ask different questions, to link up to different um, uh, players uh, as well, to, to learn that cycling isn't, isn't only uh, a different form of traffic engineering, but it's, that it also is connected to issues of health or loneliness or... Um, uh, opportunities for children, so starting to talk to completely different uh, different players. Mm. You, you, you've touched on people there, and that's actually my next question. Because an awful lot of um, cycling and transport uh, is is put into the category of, of you know that that's that's a, a science. That's you know like you, you you design roads, you design streets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's quite an abstract or very, very not, not abstract at all. But what, you, what you're doing, what you're because fo- you're a social scientist. Mm-hmm. So you're focusing not on the buildings and the streets. You're focusing on the people. Yeah. And then, and then twofold. And that's also what I hope to, to bring back in the book. So on, on one hand, it's indeed uh, those spaces that we create then serve people. So the question is, who do, who do they serve and who do, do they not serve? Uh, the justice elements of that. Um, how do people behave in those spaces? How do they interact with each other? Uh, it's sort of uh, the relatively straightforward, I would say, um, social t- scientific questions that you can ask uh, about how streets function as public spaces. Uh, but the second the second element of uh, where humans come in is how um, how humans actually uh, design, create, and engineer those spaces. That's also a human element, uh, an element of what kind of knowledge do you use, what kind of language do you use to understand uh, that's those streets. Right? Basically, the streets that we know now have been created by decades of uh, of groups of people working on it, uh, and that w- that is what makes the Netherlands, for instance, as a uh, as a context, very different uh, from the UK. Uh, so, I also want to understand how those processes work, how humans uh, come to decide to make certain things happen in certain contexts. So, you you, you focus on people. But then on, on, um, on, on video and in, in the book, uh, there's this concept which, which you liken cyclists to, to starlings, to birds, mm-hmm. and that's the flow. So can you tell our listeners here, what is the flow? Ooh, well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough one. It, that, that's one of those things that you actually, I think, have to experience to understand mm. that so uh, all the listeners should should uh, come to to uh, the netherlands and uh, and really experience that uh, of course but it so the the the, no, the notion starts and i think that's important to realize that both for me starlings and flow are examples of different types of concepts narratives language that you can use so they are for me really examples that help us to ask different questions so if you look at the traffic um uh, or at a busy intersection, and you use a different metaphor, a different lens, in this case, the, the flocking behavior of starlings, 
you start to see different things happening there and uh, you start to see different problems and also different solutions. Uh, so with the, the Starling metaphor, you start to see that cyclists, for instance, especially when their speed is relatively low, um, they are very good in, in organizing themselves and in, in, in self-organizing space in such a way that they don't collide, uh, that they are um, flowing themselves through that space, but also allowing others to to use that as well, which is a notion which is almost contrary to how we uh, engineer and organize those spaces. We organize in traffic engineering, the holy grail of an intersection is that it's conflict-free, that the technology and the, and the design creates an intersection where people do not uh, have to interact with each other uh, because interaction is almost by definition a conflict uh, because people are egoistic and they, they want to uh, basically... Uh, um, they want to uh, uh, they want to behave like uh, a goose and not like a, s- a starling. They want to go fast, long distance, and don't want to get uh, interference of others. So this whole different notion of of allowing uh, the starlings to show their um, swarming behavior uh, in Amsterdam in the end led to a complete uh, overhaul of the way that we started to design intersections. So instead of putting cyclists into the into the, uh, um, the the norms that we had, the design guidelines, we started to teach traffic engineers to observe how cyclists actually behave uh, on an intersection and use that behavior as uh, a starting point. So that's the starlings. The, the, the flow element is also an example. Um, a flow, we are trying to sort of to, uh, to reappropriate that term from the traffic engineers because flow in general is uh, the amount of traffic that you can push through a street. But flow in um, in uh, positive psychology, uh, it's it's a it's a concept developed by uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and it's all about how we how our brains are wired to look for um, moments of flow. But flow in that sense are really the the moments that we feel as human beings feel optimal. That we that the amount of um, challenges that we face uh, meet our need for uh, the skills that we have. And in those moments, I think we all know them, playing music or having having this great afternoon at work uh, where time flies, basically. Those moments, uh, that's what we crave for. And again, if you use that concept, you start seeing why, um, in the case of Amsterdam again, cyclists are not always or very seldomly uh, following the logic of traffic engineering of the shortest route from A to B but they are optimizing their route based on the amount of challenges that they want to face. So sometimes you go through the park because you want to have an easygoing route, but sometimes you actually want to hustle and bustle of the busy streets. Uh, and you see that cycling again allows the cyclist to really uh, go for the optimal personal conditions uh, uh, where, yeah, where they really look to, uh, to, to be challenged. And um, I don't want to get into too many uh technical aspect because there isn't that many in the book it's, it's very much a, a people book but then the, there is one that's mentioned so the flow is 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 carried over at least two or three pages uh but then there's also this other one called chip cone so c- can you describe what chip cone is and whether that's uh that could be ex- explored internationally yeah this is a, is a fascinating example of, of how you translate a book because uh, in Dutch it, it was it was a new uh, term that is introduced exactly because uh, of uh, the traffic engineers uh, started to observe the behavior of cyclists and they found out that uh, 
in the guidelines for how to design a good intersection, you basically uh, draw straight lines from one side to the ne- to, uh, to the other uh, where cyclists can cross. Uh, and when it gets very busy, in the case of Amsterdam, we started to see that that uh, the amount of space that that creates for cyclists to to wait for the for for the green light uh, was um, was not sufficient, and they started to behave. Erratically. So then, one thing you can do is to to uh, to start behavioral campaigns and tell uh, cyclists that they should still stay within that space. They should learn how to how to queue. Uh, they cannot use the uh, the counterflow lane because it's dangerous. But instead, the traffic engineer started to to do uh, together with us uh, and, and a group of sociology students to uh, to do observational studies uh, and uh, through. Um, uh, video uh, analysis, they found that cyclists actually showed behavior uh, that allowed them to use the intersection much uh, with a much higher capacity than you would ever have following the design guidelines. And the chip cone is is the uh, is the example that comes out of that. The chip cone basically uses the logic of the swarm, which allows on the site where cyclists are waiting, you give them more space uh, in width. Um, then uh, the opposite uh, direction, and then while crossing, you uh, um, you slowly limit the width to the other side. So the the line in the middle of the of the bidirectional bicycle path is no longer straight, but is uh, it's 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 with an angle, which allows the cyclist to go from six meter wide um, uh, bicycle path uh, in the duration of uh, crossing the road to a two meter wide uh, counterflow path. And that suddenly gives the the whole uh, vi- the whole feeling of that intersection. Uh, it fits much better with the actual behavior of the cyclist. And by doing that, it sort of uh, uh, the traffic engineers of Amsterdam won uh, in an innovation prize with that simple uh, innovation. And it's now uh, applied uh, across uh, across the Netherlands. And I even last week saw that they are now um, uh, uh, they are now transferring that knowledge to uh, an intersection in Oslo. Many many road uh, infrastructure for cars do this or similar there's one in fact quite close to me in 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 newcastle where uh it's the tyne tunnel and maybe other uh, road under the, under the river tunnels do this as well where they have an incredibly wide um area for the cars to go through because they've got to get through all of the, the the gates for the for the money but then it then filters it into so it's very incredibly wide and then it filters it down to this this narrow section but what it kind of tends to do is um, people go very fast to kind of get into that um, the, the bottleneck part. So what what, what prevents or, or maybe actually facilitates do the faster cyclists, you know, go incredibly fast to get through and the slow ones just dawdle along? Is, that, is, it, is this the chip cone? It, it, it allows everybody to go at the speed they want to go at. Well, I would say that uh, it's indeed an example that in Dutch is called Ritze, or uh, um, so what, you, what is used. It's also well described by Tom Vanderbilt in his book uh, Traffic. Uh, it's this notion that indeed you you uh, you funnel, and in that process you you organize the funneling, and there's all this science of, about what what is the best thing to do. But what really makes it different, and what I find so fascinating, is that in the case of if you do this in, in uh, as car drivers in individual cars, you become competitors with each other. You start to be, behave also competitively. You want to be uh, in front of the others. I also uh, notice that myself if I'm in, in a car. 
Well, the uh, cyclists and also because they are much more able to 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 organize this in a very fluid way, uh, it it um, uh, it gives much more the appearance of uh, uh, not not competition but um, cooperation. So it's much more a process where indeed almost automatically, if you're a fast cyclist, without having to tell that to anybody, you already uh, position yourself in such a way that you will have an optimal flow yourself, but you are also not in the way of others. So you, you create the space for also uh, altruistic behavior uh, where people that need protection are on the inside and people that want to go faster and want to take a bit more risk are on the outside. And that you don't even have to, to teach people to do that. Uh, they do that automatically and it, uh, and it functions much better. That's one of the, the big things that we found out in the, the, in the, in the chip code uh, design, according to the standard uh, conflict measurement uh, tools that the traffic engineers had, the intersection uh, functions less well because there were more conflicts according to that model. But what they actually found out when they asked the cyclist, they uh, experienced much lower levels of stress because the whole design of the intersection fitted much better with how they already behaved. Let's talk toys. Because one of the things that jumped out to me from the book was, and I have seen the, the campaign uh, on on social media to get Lego to to redesign its streets. But then there was just this 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 little factoid which was which was fascinating, where uh, cars are now taking up more space in in Lego. Uh, so they are now a Lego car is now six studs wide, whereas it used to be four studs wide in the nineteen eighties. That's fascinating how how the real world has has been miniaturized in, 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 in the toy world. Crazy. Yeah, and also the road plates we found out is that the, 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 the standard road plates that basically we give our children to develop their creativity with, and they build cities still still with that, we found out that the, the, the amount of studs on the side, so the sidewalks basically, the sidewalks of the road plates uh, went from uh, eight to uh, five studs. So they, uh, because to, to basically uh, allocate the wider cars, you need wider roads. Uh, and there were actually discussions that still open, uh, uh, by the way. Uh, some people say that on, in the 80s, on the road plates, there were uh, bicycle lanes. It, it's, it's, it's open for interpretation, I guess. Uh, but it's clearly no longer there. So the current road plates are really road plates where uh, the six stud wide cars uh, take all the space and the space goes away from, from other things. And indeed, that's what is so fascinating is, is that it has a two-way uh, relation with reality. So first of all, it is indeed a better representation of what also happened in the real world in, from the 1980s till, till now, that more and more space of our streets had to be allocated for uh, bigger and bigger uh, vehicles. But also it works the other way around. Is that If this is the creativity uh, uh, and if this is the, 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 the visual language that we give our children uh, when they start to think about their future cities on an early age, it is really strange that we uh, we are not thinking about uh, alternatives for that, that we don't give them uh, any options to really think differently uh, than um, than th- this way of streets. So they, they literally Lego in, in, in Dutch also says that with Lego, you can make everything, right? It's really about reshaping the world. But it isn't because we basically give our children not the option to uh, develop to to design a city uh, where streets are completely uh, have, a, have a completely different role, like um, a playground. Or so we started to develop that together with Marshall Steyman, and and uh, he went to uh, to the through the official route, 
Uh, and in the meantime, also because, because the book came out in the Netherlands, uh, after that, we have started to, to uh, 3D print our own plates. And we now developed our own uh, Dutch uh, Von Edef uh, Lego uh, road plate, but also uh, a, a roundabout, and a bicycle street, and a typical uh, bicycle, uh, separated bicycle path uh, road plates. Uh, again, uh, to show that not that there's not one ideal different version of the road, but that there are many uh, possibilities if you think about the road as a as a public space. And is is Lego following up on that? The the real Lego? Hardly, hardly. So they they were sort of uh, forced their their hand by uh, in the design. Uh, they have this design Lego design ideas, and uh, so we sort of. Uh, we, Marcel Steenman, who's in the book, he presented that idea to them, and then you had to collect 10,000 uh, support um, statements, uh, which was easily done because people really recognized uh, why this should be, a, why, why this was a fight worth fighting. Uh, but in the end, they decided not to take it into uh, production. Um, so we decided to to make our own 3D version and also. Uh, um, the whole design is, is open uh, source, so people can now basically print their own uh, road plates. But what really was fascinating also to find out is that there, there are many other toy makers. Uh, one example in the Netherlands, it's called way to play And they were also uh, coming to the conclusion through reading the book that their own road plates that they were giving to children were also very much uh, uh, monopolized by the, by the notion that roads were uh, black uh, asphalt uh, places for cars, and they started to develop a, a cardboard version of their uh, of their uh, road plates. And those cardboard versions had two amazing things. One was that they they now offer a downtown uh, play version where children can already play with with adding parks, uh, uh, doing all kinds of other stuff with the street. But the 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 flip side of the cardboard streets are empty, and this is really where the creativity of the children comes to the fore. They can really design their own streets uh, that can fit their, their own creativity. And I think that's, uh, that's the whole point here is that uh, that will start the creativity that we need if we really want to have a transformational change to how our streets are designed in the coming decades. I mean, there's the Jesuit idiom, isn't there? You know, give me a child, you know, uh, up to the age of seven and I will give you the man. So it's very important to get, to get kids I mean, we, 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 this is not just a childish thing. This is this is actually very, very important to, to get kids thinking very early on that, yes, roads are not just strips of black asphalt. They can be movement isn't the only thing a road is for. Yes. No, and that requires that requires movements and people to also people themselves to become aware of that. So that's that's the also the notion in the in the book. Uh, Talia came to me to talk about bicycles and I basically started to ask her questions about all the things she took for granted already. And that's also what we uh, heard back from a lot of readers in the Netherlands, that the book sort of opened their eyes to the things they, they, they took for granted. Uh, many people just uh, see the street as something that's just there. It's, it's, it has been designed by experts. They've thought about that. And that's that. They're not really happy with it, but they also don't see it as something that you could fight for. And we show them that there's a, there's, there's a, a need to fight for it because it's public space. And we have a lot of important uh, societal uh, problems that, that require space to be taken away from the street as we know it. But it's also possible to do it. But the possibility 
the, the notion that you can actually challenge that idea that the road is a, is a black asphalt space between buildings, uh, the, challenging the notion and showing all these examples that streets can also be places where children can develop uh, their own autonomy or where neighbors can meet each other, um, where uh, 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 trees can, can grow, uh, where all kinds of things are, um, are possible. I think showing that to people uh, creates the potential for transformational change for people that are then stepping up um, and creating uh, their own uh, personal or local movement. And, and you also, in, in the book, it describes the, the, the campaign you had uh, where you did make some changes uh, to your, your child's school. So there was a plan. Well, you tell me, what was the, what was the original plan for your child's school and what did the eventual plan uh, create? Yeah, that started with the notion that the, the school was presented in the middle of a neighborhood, a new school uh, in an old factory building. And, uh, and then uh, to the neighbors, uh, uh, the, the maps were shown so there, there, there will be a school here. This is how the schoolyard will be designed. And um, many experts have thought about this. Uh, so this is really sort of the best that we can come up with. Uh, and that was presented in such a way to, to the neighbors. But when you looked at the map, it showed that our children would get less than three square meters of playground per child, which was just according to the norm, but only just. Uh, and the reason why this was so limited was, uh, and I immediately spotted that, but most people didn't, but was that there was a huge kiss a ride facility. So there was a, the schoolyard was 600 square meters and the kiss a ride was 1100 square meters. The kiss a ride would then allow parents to drop off their kids. So the school drop off zone for, uh, for, for car drivers. And, the, and again, this whole thing showed to all the stakeholders involved, it was presented as you have to take this for granted. This is what ex experts thought about. This is how they put the puzzle together. This is what you get. So even the director of the school said, well, um, this plan meets all the norms, but it doesn't uh, uh, allow us any dreams, but we have to take it for granted. This is what we get. And we basically went there and, as a group of neighbors and said, no, we don't have to take that for granted. We can, we can challenge it because the experts came with this notion because they followed uh, the norms and the models, but those models are not uh, a they are not. Uh, 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 they are not law. They are not given. They are. They are also created with a certain purpose. We can challenge them, and we should develop alternatives. So we developed an alternative where we basically told the school, uh, ask the parents to not come by car, um, and even uh, to a certain extent force them to not come by car. And if you succeed in doing that, we are going to ask the municipality to, from day one, reclaim this uh, drop-off zone as an addition to the schoolyard. Uh, and that addition to the schoolyard, we now, uh, we now basically won because we've shown, we've shown to the traffic engineers that the world didn't collapse if you don't allow car drivers to come close to school. And we also showed to the, to the children and to, the, to their parents and to the neighbors what quality you can get back. It's not only about not having uh, cars around school, but suddenly you have 1,100 extra square meters for children to grow, for, uh, for greenery, uh, for the autonomous development of children. They have much more space, much more diversity of, of playgrounds now. Uh, and that quality was not, it wasn't on the table. It was not that somebody was against it. It was just not on the table. The, mm -hmm. the radical monopoly, the whole notion that we have to design a school uh, environment first and foremost for, um, for safe uh, car uh, traffic, 
that notion and the fact that you can challenge that was so new to all the people involved. So it's so a movement. The book uh, has uh, before and after photographs uh, of that of your child's uh, uh, school. Uh, so people can actually uh, uh, look at that and, and and see the after one is definitely much much better. Now, Mark, I'm going to we're going to stop here. We're going to have a a, a brief uh, commercial interlude, uh, but I want to come back uh, and and talk about the liability law. Hey, all you spokesman listeners, I hope you'll excuse the interruption, but this is David from the Fredcast and the Spokesman, and I want to take a few minutes out of the show to talk to you about our sponsor, Turn Bicycles, at www.turnbicycles.com. That's T-E-R-N, like the bird, bicycles.com. Turn are committed to building bikes that are useful enough to ride every day and dependable enough to carry the people you love. Now, last time I told you about Turn's Quick Haul e-bike, but today I want to talk to you about a sibling to the Quick Haul, and that is the Short Haul Compact Cargo Bike. The Short Haul is a practically priced, wait till the end for the price, you're going to love it, cargo bike that's been designed to get a rider plus an extra passenger and cargo from home to work to school and everywhere in between. And I think that when you see a short haul, you'll realize that it may be unlike any cargo or city bike you've ever seen. That's because most cargo bikes are big and unwieldy. And most city bikes, while they're easy enough to handle, well, they're just, they're just not able to carry much cargo. And that, I think, is why Turn designed the short haul. The short haul is shorter than a regular city bike, making it nimble and, yeah, fun to ride. But it was also designed with an extra long wheelbase and low center of gravity. Then that gives you a stable ride, even when you're carrying heavy loads. In other words, the short haul offers the best of both worlds, packing a sturdy build and a hefty cargo capacity into a compact package that just simply rides better. With a mass max gross vehicle weight of 140 kilos or just under 310 pounds, the short haul can easily carry an extra passenger and plenty of cargo. It's got extra long, extra strong rear rack, and that is rated to carry a hefty 50 kilos or about 110 pounds. And it can be configured to carry a child in a child seat, an older kid, a small adult, maybe even a, a dog. In addition to its rear cargo capacity, it can also carry up to 20 kilos or about 44 pounds with an optional front-mounted rack. Oh, and the short haul accepts a wide range of turn accessories, frankly, too many to mention here, so that you can carry everything from a yoga mat to fishing poles to an ice chest or, as I said before, even the family dog. And because of its size, you can easily maneuver in crowded or small places, including buses and trains. Plus, like the quick haul, the short haul includes Turn's vertical parking feature, so you can roll the bike into an elevator and park it in a corner of your apartment. Now, like I said before, safety is a core value at Turn, so that's why the short haul was designed and independently tested to ensure rider safety, and that's also why they use respected independent testing labs and why every turn bike undergoes rigorous testing to ensure that every bike meets or exceeds comprehensive safety standards. Oh, and did I mention the price before? Well, get this. At a suggested retail of $1,099 or €1,249, the short haul is turn's most affordable cargo bike 
yet. Bikes are scheduled to start arriving in stores in Q3 of 2022, so start getting your orders in now. And for more information about the short haul or any of Turn's wide range of bikes, just head on over to turnbicycles.com. That's T-E-R-N bicycles.com. We thank Turn for their sponsorship of the Spokesman podcast, and we thank you for your support of Turn. Also, thanks for allowing this brief interruption, everyone. And now... Back to Carlton and the spokesman. Thanks, David, and uh, and 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 thanks for the, the message from Turn. There now, um, I spoke before about the liability law because the movement in the book um, uh, by, by Talia Vacade and uh, by my guest today, Marco T. Brommelstroot. Did I get that even partially correct there? Marco? Yeah, it was recognisable. It was, thank you. <laughs> so I'll stick to Marco. Oh, Feats Professor. Even that's difficult. Cycling Professor. Yeah, so, just, just, just call me Marco. Marco. Marco's so much easier. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, so, Marco, uh, the book has got lots of history in there, um, which, which I'm, I am obviously fascinated by. Um, so, so Talia's gone back into archives and, and, and dug into stuff. And then there's one bit which, which I hadn't realized the history uh went back quite so far on this and that's you know all the way back to 1924 the liability law now whenever you mention um this concept in the uk you 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 get a lot of kickback from bicycle advocates who say this this law isn't that um important it's all to do with hard infrastructure we forget forget all of these different laws all we need are bike paths um, but the book is describing how this liability law ha- has a very, very important psychological impact. Never mind, you know, a physical impact on on reducing speeds, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, just describe the Dutch liability law and how it is actually quite potentially uh, uh, more important than people might imagine. Yeah, for, first of all, it's indeed important. Uh, in, in Dutch, there, these terms overlap much more, I think, than than in English. But it's really indeed not about. Um, uh, blame uh, the law is really about, uh, and also not about responsibility, but about liability. So it's really about who who's basically uh, paying in the end of the day uh, if there is a, a collision between uh, two uh, two partners. Um, and uh, what what I, what I think indeed the law does it 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 uh, it shows that everything you do uh, in organizing. Uh, in designing the street, but also in organizing the way that people interact uh, in public space, everything you do is by definition uh, a choice in first principles. So you, you cannot come up with uh, a way of organizing that in, in uh, let's say, an, an objective way. Uh, you always have to make, um, uh, yeah, you always have to solve dilemmas. And what uh, uh, the history also of this uh, this law shows is that if you make that explicit, uh, it at least becomes something that you can you can then start uh, talking about. So who who is liable? Who is bringing in the danger on the street? Um, and why is that so important? I, I do think that it's it it's uh, it it has been watered down a lot that uh, discussion, and I think it should be brought back more to the front. It became sort of um, uh, an organizing principle that's in the background uh, for many. It's often also in, in Dutch discussions. Uh, uh, mostly by uh, by uh, car drivers or um, uh, the organizations that uh, that support them uh, is, is brought in the, the notion that Dutch cyclists also are now just 
throwing themselves in front of cars because they don't have any liability anyway. So it's, it became a bit of a, a strange discussion um, here as well. Uh, so the current discussion still, I think, uh, deserves in, in, in all countries, but also in the Netherlands, to have the discussion again about what are the first principles that are, be, are behind that. And that leads also to the notion we also discuss uh, in the book about why are we talking about, for instance, traffic safety all across the world, also in the Netherlands, as, um, as a matter of um, uh, as, uh, as statistics that are uh, talking about uh, the victims. So why are we calling something a bicycle crash if, uh, if somebody uh, on the bicycle is hit by a car driver? Uh, and all these elements also, they, they come back again to that notion, what are the first, first principles that underlie this? What, why are we talking about uh, safety and why are we not talking about the danger itself? The liability law, um, and that's also shown in that, that discussion, it wasn't a clear cut. It, there was a lot of discussion uh, and it was really one person fighting for that. Um, but it was in the end uh, also for that person, it was about this first principle to, to put the onus on those that bring in uh, the danger on the street and not those that make a mistake. In, in the book, uh, there is a very painful episode um, that I, I haven't heard discussed uh, by you before. And I, I believe in the book, it actually says that you, you may not have wanted to, to, to discuss it openly before, because then people might assume that this is why uh, you advocate and you, you, you study what, what you do. But do you want to describe what happened to you or what happened to a friend of yours, I should say, really, as a nine-year-old? Yeah, when I was nine, I was, um, I was a very close witness to uh, my best friend b- being killed in front of my eyes uh, through uh, a collision uh, with, a, with a car driver. And um, yeah, we found out actually during, so during the process of writing the book, Talia and I were uh, talking a lot, of course, with each other. And we sort of had this feeling that was more and more, uh, uh, I wanted to talk about the, the justice element and the fact that our streets have been uh, designed as places that are now dangerous for, uh, for, for basically for everybody, but especially for, for children. And how unfair and unjust uh, that that was. So we more and more moved in that direction. So we started to talk about mobility innovations, uh, electrical cars, uh, bicycle highways, and more and more we went deeper and deeper into the underlying questions, the questions of what kind of principles do we use to design the streets, but also what is even underneath that. So we were going deeper and deeper into into the rabbit hole until we came to that that point where I actually wanted to go from the start uh, to discuss not how we could solve traffic congestion, but how we could make our streets more just. And we started to discuss and develop ideas around uh, how people were actually experiencing uh, traffic crashes, how people that were losing their loved ones uh, were perceiving that, how newspaper and media were playing uh, a, a role in that. And more and more it became clear to Talia that I had this uh, personal experience um, but it was also not easy to talk about that. And that's how that's beca- that became actually also a, a part of the book where we discuss um, that, that sort of process of opening up. And I learned uh, during that process to talk with um, other people that were involved. Uh, and actually, uh, actually, through that process, we learned how important it is for society, uh, but also for individuals, in this case me, to talk about those um, tragic events 
and uh, and uh, see them right in the face, right? instead of ignoring them for years as a way to to cope with the pain or to not have to discuss it, and to also not have to discuss the consequences of it. Uh, for me personally, it was uh, it it uh, uh, it was much better to 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 basically it was painful, but it, I came to the conclusion that it was much better for me personally to to have that conversation openly with all the players involved, also the uh, the car driver herself. Mm. And that that made us also draw the conclusion that that might also be important for society, that we tend to not really talk about uh, the, uh, the, the, the drama that happens every day, multiple times uh, on the, the roads in the UK, uh, but also in the Netherlands. We don't really talk about that. We sort of put it in in terms that we don't really have to face the fact that we actually are uh, hurting and killing each other on a daily basis. And we think that we do need to have that conversation because that would lead to uh, to a much healthier uh, societal debate. So when I was roughly that that age, probably a bit younger, in fact, I think I was probably seven, one of my best friends was also killed uh, uh, by a motorist um, when I was living in in Newcastle. My auntie was killed in a motorway smash. So... You know, people, virtually everybody on the planet knows somebody uh, or has has witnessed, like you you witnessed, a, a road fa- fatality, and yet, as you say, it's it's just not really discussed. So when when I when I see um, a family torn apart by a fatality, I kind of I play a mind exercise and just think, well, that family would they rather that motoring, which has caused most of these fatalities, would they rather motoring just never existed and that their their family member would still be with them if cars had not been invented? It, it, do you think that's a fair exercise to, to, to play? Or is it just we can actually design these things out by you know autonomous vehicles or whatever? So what should we be looking at here? Never having... The utility of a motor car dependent society or just moving to a vision zero where we have no um, crashes in the future well f- first of all i'm so- sorry to hear that that it also uh, affected uh, affected you um, and indeed that's one of the things that we've also learned by uh, putting this this uh, this story explicitly in the book how many mm. people suddenly become aware of uh, the fact how, clo- how people close to them uh, had that experience. And basically, we, we, if you count the numbers, it's, it's indeed everybody knows somebody, at least close by, that's, uh, that, that lost somebody or uh, we, we are not even... Uh, um, uh, it's, it's, it's even unfathomable how many people get severely injured uh, but also those, all those people around, all the, the, the even the first aid workers. But also, the, the, and I think that's that's one of the uh, one of the key points here. If if we want to discuss that openly as society, also the people that 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 caused it, right, or that it, at least were behind the wheel of of a, a car when this uh, this happened. This this systemic nature of the violence, uh, the systemic nature of how we um, don't. Uh, this, this, so it's not even uh, blaming. It's it's not about blame. It's that the whole system is designed in such a way that if you make one small error, 
basically, I think uh, uh, another great book recently out by Peter Norton, Autorama, he described it very nicely. It's not human error, it's species error. So we know that people are actually, humans are not able to um, to operate those machines in a safe way. It's just, you, we are not just, we are just clearly incapable of that. So um, we shouldn't design uh, uh, and allow people to use those machines in, in, um, in such a way that they can so easily harm and kill each, each other. So to which vision or to which uh, future we should go, I think that's not for me to, to discuss, but I think we need to discuss it. I think we need to have much more open discussions uh, by our uh, policymakers and politicians that go beyond the notion that traffic safety is something that we have to teach our children uh, towards a traffic safety that is something uh, that is currently a, a systemic feature of the of our streets and it shouldn't be or at least it, it there's also an option that it isn't uh, and uh, we use different uh, logic so in the 1920s when the uh, the car came to our streets we talked about this in terms of justice now we talk talk about it in terms of effectiveness of our efficiency uh, so traffic crashes are mostly discussed in the media as a nuisance because they will they lead to uh, closed roads or congestion for X amount of people. And we are not talking about the, the deep uh, traumatic experience that whole families go through every day, every day. And it's amazing. And that's on both sides. So I think the main point is also people um, die. Everybody dies in the end uh, in, in one way or another. Uh, so we shouldn't uh, opt for vision zero in terms of zero people are allowed to, to die uh, in a way uh, uh, if you if you can, for instance, in the Netherlands cycle until a very old age, uh, you have so many health benefits, but you also, of course, then run the risk of dying while you're uh, exercising uh, on on a bike. It is really about the notion that we are killing each other. The notion is not that people are dying. The 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 the, the vision zero should be about uh, zero people should uh, kill each other. I think. So Peter Norton's book, which you mentioned, Peter's been a, a frequent uh, guest on this this the show. So his his latest book, Autonorama, uh, is, is all about um, the, the the perils of of magical thinking, really, over uh, autonomous vehicles, driverless cars. Um, and in your book, uh, yours and Talia's book, you have a, a a black you describe it as a black mirror style. Uh, well, it's it's not a, a utopia; it's a dystopia mm -hmm. where driverless cars, you know, feature, and and the downsides of driverless cars absolutely feature. So, where do you stand on 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 driverless cars, and 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 how that isn't going to be quite as rosy a future as people uh, uh, tend to be told by the mass media? Well, where do I start? so what my take on all those things is is that we are also with with any mobility innovation and almost any mobility discussion we are we are uh, blind to or take for granted the underlying narrative that's being told and and with driverless cars uh, the notion uh, that's really strong but it's actually strong I would say in almost any mobility innovation. Uh, and that is basically also the notion that led to the streets as we know them today. Uh, we have been working as society for decades, spent a lot of money to create mobility systems with that same narrative. And that's the narrative that we as individuals want to go as fast and easy and comfortable as possible from A to B. Uh, and that's, of course, partly what we want. 
uh, but it's it, it's it is never the full picture because uh, if you ask that as uh, to citizens and you would confront them with the um, uh, with the ups and the downs of of that way of designing streets, uh, we would have a much more um, uh, adult conversation, I would uh, say, about all the different values uh, that we uh, that we want to be uh, included when we when we design the streets, and we are perfectly. Uh, willing, most of uh, uh, most of us at least, we're perfectly willing to sacrifice going a bit slower from A to B, if mm. that also adds much more quality to the street. And the driverless car is for me just a, a logical next step in that, sort of an uncritical acceptance of the notion that going fast from A to B is the key thing for an individual to do. Uh, and f- only for that reason already, we should be uh, more wary about that because those notions, as you say, say correctly, they almost by definition lead to dystopia by following uh, one uh, indicator that guides, uh, uncritically guides us towards a certain future. Uh, that future will, um, will, will become dystopian almost uh, uh, by, uh, by default. So, so I know that you, it, you, one of your uh, direct messages to Talia was fewer autonomous cars, more autonomous children. Yeah, or uh, we don't need driverless cars; we need carless drivers. But but that's mm. that's also um, it's it's a position, and I would I would argue that my my key point also as academic here is uh, it's not about which of these positions is per se better. What we want to show in the book is that they are positions, and you are by definition taking a position, and it's not sort of uh, the future is a given or technological. Uh, 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 innovations will come and we have to deal with them. No, you take uh, by definition as a politician, as a policymaker, as a parent, as a as a consumer, as a citizen, you are taking a position. And we want to show to people that they should be more um, uh, aware and more reflexive on that position. And by showing that there's also a future where we could design our cities as places that are not, uh, where people are not dependent on vehicles and technology to bring them to uh, valuable activities, that that is actually a possibility. And then you open the realm of choices and you also show to people that they can actually fight for one or, one or the other. So what, one of the notions that I find uh, amazing is the book in the Netherlands is, is used a lot by politicians uh, these days. We just had the municipal elections and we see that in many of the current uh, coalition agreements, the book plays a role, which is really cool to see. But it's still remarkable how little, uh, uh, how little divergence or difference there is in the mobility paragraphs of different political parties. It's almost like they uh, they they don't see that there's really fundamental principle choices to be made. So the discussions, the mobility discussions, in the end, are about what kind of technology you favor. Do you favor transit uh, uh, as long as it's electric or green? Do you favor electrical? Uh, cars or are you a bicycle enthusiast? Well, it, the discussion I think should be much more about okay, what to what kind of future do these technologies lead? What kind of public spaces do we want? What kind of uh, engagement with uh, our fellow citizens do we aspire to as a as society? And there's there's there are very few contexts where I see that uh, that happening. It's good to to hear that your your book is. Uh... It's being used by politicians. That's good, even if they they may be missing the point sometimes. Um, uh, so let's talk about your book in and where people can get it, um, who it's published by, um, all that kind of information. So so people have been fascinated by your, this conversation, and they'll, they'll be fascinated by your book. Where can they get it? 
Well, the book is uh, published by Scribe Publishers uh, in the in the UK uh, for now, and uh, f- uh, for uh, those that are listening from uh, outside of the UK, uh, it can be ordered uh, through um, to uh, Blackwell uh, Publishers. Oh, Bla- no, Bla- Blackwell um, Bookstores, and they ship it uh, across uh, across the world. Um, okay, and and where can people hear? I mean, we've already talked talked about Feats Professor, so they, we we now we've got your social media handle. But where can people find out about um, the summer school? Uh, the summer school is uh, is, is is actually uh, uh, it's a program by the University of Amsterdam. So you should go to uh, to Google in this case, and if you Google planning the cycling city uh, at University of Amsterdam, you can uh, you can sign up for the the version of next year because this year is already full. Uh, mm. sadly for those that still want to come but what we do also offer uh, since uh, since we found through the summer school the enormous amount of uh, of craving that there is for this kind of knowledge but also this kind of confusion I would say uh, we off- also offer these programs as uh, open online courses so you can find them on Coursera uh, and on Coursera you can follow the course uh, Unraveling the Cycling City it's a four week course uh, for free uh, and we also put up a new a new one, uh, which is called Getting Smart About Cycling Futures, that really takes you by the hand through thinking about uh, especially cycling innovations and thinking uh, critically about what kind of cycling futures we are creating with different types of, uh, of innovations. So that's, I think, uh, the, the, the go-to if you really want to, uh, to go deeper into this rabbit hole. Okay, thank you. And also another go-to. Uh, which is mentioned because uh, the, the back of the book has got loads of um, action plans. What, here's what you can do. Here's what you can read, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things it, it says is, is go follow the people or go follow the, the, the things that are on the lab of thought.co. So what, what's the lab of thought, Marco? With the lab of thought, we are creating uh, um, uh, a foundation where we bring together uh, in, in, in first, uh, the, the first uh, uh, installment of the foundation, we bring together uh, um, uh, large mobility innovators uh, and policymakers. So uh, a number of uh, international cities, uh, but also a number of international uh, mobility innovation companies. And with the lab of thought, what we are going to develop together with them is uh, an increased uh, what we call cognitive leniency. So we, together with them, we teach them to become more reflexive about what narratives, what uh, language, what kind of... Uh, images or imaginaries do they use when they think about the future that then uh, in, in turn solidify into their innovation? So what kind of future are they basically creating? And what happens if you start questioning those? What, what happens with, with the products of those companies if you start developing uh, them from an alternative uh, imaginary? And what that directly leads to, uh, hopefully, and that's what we're going to find out in the coming months, is all kinds of alternative uh, prototyping. So one of the prototypes that we're currently working on is um, a, a, a redevelopment, basically, of the standard traffic safety uh, school programs that are being used across the world. Uh, we found out that the imaginary, the narrative that they use is traffic safety is, 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 a, uh, is a responsibility of our children, and they, they have to mm-hmm. learn at a very early age to cross the road safely. And what we are developing as sort of a, a prototype counter narrative for that is that we teach them active citizenship. We teach uh, the children from an early age that they can actually go to places and fight for safer streets uh, so that their safety is, is guaranteed. That's an example of a, of a prototype 
of a very different mobility innovation that, that hopefully leads to a very different mobility future. Thanks to Marco T. Brommelstroke there. This has been episode 299 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast brought to you in association with Turn Bicycle. Thanks for listening and watch out for the next Sardinian-themed episode popping up in your feed real soon. Meanwhile, get out there and ride. Mm-hmm.